Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, and this is a joy, as we consider this terrible pandemic and all of us at Bloomberg Surveillance have done everything we can to bring you experts. David Ricks is out of Purdue. He runs a shop called Eli Lilly in his Indiana, and they are dominant in our history of finding solutions, whether it's insulin, erythromycin, and particularly what Lilly did on polio vaccine in 1955 was absolutely original absolutely historic. The phrase from that time is safe, effective, impotent. That is the great hope right now for all of us. Dave Ricks, how close are we to safe, effective, and potent? Well, thanks for having me on. It's uh, obviously a time when the importance of our scientists' work is, is at, at a high. Um, as you mentioned, back to our days with the polio vaccine, that's really in our blood here at Lilly is to respond to these public health crises. Um, we're working on the medicine side, um, and I think we are close to understanding that treatment with uh, monoclonal antibodies, which we're making, and others are, um, early in the disease can make a, a significant difference. We announced data earlier in October regarding that, and we've got an application at the FDA uh, reviewing that, that very data. Which therapy has the best outcome where we can say we have a vaccine? Peter Hotez at Baylor Medicine is saying simply we need something cheap and old school. John spoke with Novartis this morning. There's Moderna, all the rest of them. Which is the approach, Mr. Ricks, that seems to be the one that will get us to a societal vaccine? Well, I think on the vaccine side, uh, the good news is there's lots of approaches being tried. Yes. You know, in our business, uh, we need data. Uh, I, I don't think it makes sense to guess um, at which would, would be uh, the most effective. The good news is we'll know that, and we'll know that uh, pretty soon. The early ones, as you pointed out, are the mRNA, um, a new technology that's never produced a human vaccine before, but looks pretty promising in terms of the ability to generate uh, our own antibody response. And that's a good sign, I think, for defeating the virus or uh, preventing infectious spread. We don't know how long that will last. There's other approaches that have produced vaccines, modified virus, um, taking different viruses and mounting elements of the COVID virus on them. Um, and those are more proven. They're a little harder to scale, um, but they also may produce a good response. Mostly, I'm confident because we have so many shots on goal, um, really an un unprecedented number so quickly. Yeah. Um, so I think science will win in the end. It's just hard to pick right. the winner at this point in the horse race. John, that's a hockey phrase there. That's not a soccer phrase because there's so few shots it might on be a goal soccer phrase. in soccer. That's a hockey phrase there from Mr. You Ricks. don't know what Dave meant. I'm just going to interpret it as a soccer phrase. It still makes sense. <laughs> okay, Dave, thank you. you mentioned the word scale, scale. And I want to return to antibody therapies. And please help me understand how difficult it is to scale something up quickly in large amounts as soon as you get the green light? Yeah, it, it's difficult. Because it's so difficult, we actually started commercial manufacturing in the first week in July. So we had to basically aim at a target that hadn't arrived at its point yet. We didn't know the dose. We didn't know whether the drug could work. We didn't know in which setting it would work. And today or yesterday, we announced a, um, a study we'd 
been conducting with the NIH, we're going to pause because it's in a later stage of the disease where probably these antibodies won't be as effective. Whereas an early stage of the disease looks highly effective. So we already started that process. It's about um, four months um, from beginning to end, best case, to start manufacturing and have output. And then on top of all that, the global um, infrastructure to make monoclonal antibodies, which are some of the most uh, complicated and expensive type of medicines to make, is limited. We've harnessed actually five different sites within our network, collaborating with Amgen and working with a large contract manufacturer um, owned by Samsung, actually, in Korea to sequester a significant amount of volume. Even then, we know it won't be enough for all the needs based on the current infection rates. So we need to work on lower doses and then concentrating these uh, important therapies where they can make the biggest impact. For us right now, we think that's high-risk patients right as they're diagnosed. Rick, there's also, a, Dave, Dave, excuse me, uh, there's also a question of profitability. And your latest earnings report, which just came out, said that you expect to spend $400 million on COVID therapies, exploring what could potentially work. And there's a natural cap to whatever you can charge for these remedies because there is a public health need and benefit yeah. right now. How profitable can these therapies actually be based on the human interest here? Yeah, so today we announced earnings. It's a good point. That's why I'm on, uh, which showed another solid quarter. We grew revenue and, and profit amidst this uh, pandemic we're in. And really, I think it shows the resilience of a company like ours. Um, as we think about uh, pricing and access, our first priority is that patients pay nothing. We know that if there's an out-of-pocket cost, uh, that, that economics will start to differentiate who gets the drug. And we think that uh, health status should be the only factor considered. So we're working with governments to procure and sell our medicines and distribute within their markets. In terms of pricing, what we're thinking about uh, carefully is, is to create a price that immediately creates value, not just for us, but for the system, meaning it saves money, direct costs uh, very quickly. And we've demonstrated we can reduce hospitalization risk in high-risk patients between 70 and 80%. In the US, a hospitalization stay for COVID is about $22,000 per person. So there's ample room to share that value, assuming the drug is approved. Um, so we're working on the exact price. It won't be as profitable as other products, certainly. We expect to have a modest return for shareholders based on our modeling today. Um, but I think companies like ours, uh, we were built for moments like this. Our job is to invest at risk use our science to solve tough problems. And there, there's a tough problem at hand right now. And that's why we're applying ourselves to it. Dave, I think I speak for us all when I say good luck for the year, year ahead. That's for sure. Dave Ricks, appreciate the time this morning, sir. Thank you. Elon Lilly, chairman and CEO. You know how this works. I introduce a guest from Morgan Stanley. They talk about a V-shaped recovery, how they were right. Everyone else was wrong. Lisa will ask some questions about why they might be wrong in a month, two months, three. That's the next five minutes right here on Bloomberg. Andrew Sliman joins us right now. Morgan Stanley Investment Management Senior Portfolio Manager. Andrew, well done. You're smiling. I know. V-shaped recovery, stocks up and all that. What's the latest call right now, Andrew? How do you see the evolution of this call at the House of Morgan Stanley that's been pretty spot on for the last six months? Well, you know, as a portfolio manager, I, I see the evolution as really the equal weighted S&P outperforming cap weighted, which is namely that, uh, as you know, up through September, 
the cap weighted was massively outperforming the equal weighted. It was massively mm. outperforming the small cap index. And then something happened. And that is that we're starting to see more of these economically sensitive stocks starting to pick up. So I think the evolution is that it's not so much at the market level as it pertains to cap-weighted S&P. It's more the underpinnings of the rest of the stocks in the index that have really lagged behind. I think they're starting to price some type of reopening. But they did get very overbought on a short-term basis, so things like yesterday doesn't surprise me at all that we had a you know retrenchment yeah. a bit. Andrew, the goal here is to have some patience. I want you to define the character and color of patience right now. How do you counsel patience, say, out to January or February of next year? Well, I'm counseling patience through next Tuesday, <laughs> um, which is uh, resist the urge to overreact to whatever happens Thank in the you. election that doesn't doesn't fit your, you know, whatever your, not you, but your political view is because, you know, look, I got gray hair. I've been in this business a long time. I've seen so many people, so many people react uh, by doing things in their financial portfolio to express their political views that never turn out to be right. So I'm trying to get people just to, you know, look past it. But as it pertains to um, uh, out to next year, um, you know, there's a history of re-outbreaks of diseases in the fall after the initial outbreaks in you know the winter spring previous uh and you don't get as much of a pullback in the market because it's a known risk we knew we were going to get another re-emergence and so i don't think from a financial standpoint it will cause the destruction that we had the first go around and i do think the market will begin it's still october but the market will begin to anticipate uh, that we will get through this at some point, that the comps, you know, this is a very important point, the comparisons for a lot of companies that were shut down this year is going to be very, very easy next year. And the market won't sit around and wait for the reality of that to happen next year. It's going to start to anticipate that as we get later into this year. So I think we get through the election and it doesn't really matter who's elected. The, the comparisons are going to be easy for a lot of these companies. And I think that's what people will focus on. So perhaps 10 minutes ago, Andrew, I might have asked you about what happens if the vaccine isn't exactly as effective as people think or the virus is spreading more than expected. But that would make me incredibly predictable to Jonathan Farrow, who already predicted I would ask all of those things. So instead, I will ask yeah. about theoretically if someone were in a triple leveraged cash fund right now <laughs> and, we're looking, <laughs> and we're looking for an entry point, uh, you know, what they should be buying, how they should be arranging their sure. portfolio and equities now yeah. for what you're expecting next year. Well, if you say now, do you mean at this very moment? Look, I, I can tell you that um, we sold, I trimmed yesterday in our portfolio, some, a couple of financial stocks, not the big banks, but had gone up a lot, right? I trimmed one of our emerging market stocks that had gone up a lot. I think, you know, there's been a lot of risk on since uh, you know, the bottom of this little short-term pullback that happened in September. And a lot of things to me look very overbought on a short-term basis. Risk looks overbought. So it doesn't surprise me we got a pullback. And I think that's kind of a short-term play, but I still think 
positioning wise, if we get further pullback anxiety into the election, what I would say to you, take advantage to get out of that, uh, you know, cash position, because I think it doesn't really matter who's elected. I think the market uh, is heading higher into next year. But again, I'm much more confident in the equal weighted than the cap weighted index. So, Andrew, on November 4th, if we get any kind of ne negative dislocation, we know that you're a buyer. Well, again, we knew that COVID was reemergence was a known risk. We know that <clears throat> dislocation, that's code for uh, contested election. That's a known risk. We didn't know in 2000 about an, a contested election. Bush Gore was an, an unknown risk of contested election. We had an 8.6% peak to trough down uh, pullback in that uh, unknown risk. So I don't think this known risk, it doesn't mean we can't have a pullback, but I just don't think it's going to be as much because we're all talking about it. Uh, so the question is, what are the unknown risks that we're not talking about? What happens if the economy accelerates too fast and the Fed uh, changes policy. What happens if, you know, we have another Fed chair next year? I'm just throwing out things that people aren't talking about. That's what the market tends to act, react more negatively to. Andrew, great to catch up, sir. Thank you. Wasn't quite great, as I predicted, you. but it was close. Andrew Slurk <laughs> from Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Thank you very much. Ryan Nick of Nuvi says the lack of fiscal stimulus is weighing heavily on the market outlook. Those programs have all but expired, and there's not really a promise for any replacement until perhaps the middle of the first quarter of next year. And so what we're seeing, I think, is at least a, a, a pause by markets as they kind of evaluate what this is going to mean for earnings and for the economy as a whole in the fourth quarter. That's the take of Brian Nick. Here's the take of Chris Watling of Longview Economics writing the following. The update on the monthly U.S. household cash flow model and the latest money supply data support the contention that further stimulus isn't necessary. What's needed is a vaccine that would release the full effects of the stimulus. Tom Keane, that is a take that Chris Watling doesn't just hold alone. That's a take that many people share with him. Yeah, there's no question about it. It really goes back to really the foundation of Longview Economics out of Casino of Chris Watling really talking about old normal. I love that idea, Chris Watling, of pushing against the PIMCO religion of new normal. What is the Watling old normal and what does it mean forward? Well, I mean, the old old normal is is uh, I mean, if you like, it's kind of what goes around comes around. And the thing I the thing I like about economic theory is it changes all the time, and um, people get stuck on one theory. But the reality is the world changes, and you need to you need to use a different theory to to sort of address it, which is kind of what we're thinking about in the old normal, going back to where you were. But I mean, what it means here is that. It's amazing how much cash has amassed on balance sheets. And in some ways it's amazing, in some ways it isn't. Of course, we've had an enormous cash transfer from the government sector to the household sector globally. I mean, it's been biggest in the States where, of course, you've had the extra $1,200 checks. To, um, but in terms of the old normal, I mean, we're going back to that theory of helicopter money. It's, it's, it's clearly at play, isn't it? And, uh, and as a result, you've got Americans with over $2 trillion now of sort of extra yeah. cash on their balance sheets, which well, is which is really quite something. Well, your research notes extraordinary on that. Whether it goes back to you know you know M one M two and the theories of old or not, we're up to our eyeballs in cash. What will be the catalyst for someone to find comfort to put that to work? Well, this is why I think the biggest stimulus really is the vaccine, um, and the vaccine, of course, 
I liken it to throwing the match onto the kerosene. And the stimulus is the kerosene. It's already sitting there. It's waiting for that, for that match to hit it. And, of course, uh, you know, once you, get, once you get the vaccine, you begin the normalization uh, well, of spending Chris. process. And, uh, and all the sort of wealthy baby boomers who are retired or semi-retired and, 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 the, and the high-income workers who may have been sheltering, all these people come out and start spending that cash they've been saving and, uh, and get the economy going and returning to normal. Chris, I, a lot of people agree with you. I am sitting here listening to you. We're all waiting for a vaccine. The question is, what do you do in the meantime as millions of people lose their jobs and don't have any income and the tourism industry is dead and you end up with this situation where people can't be employed because there are many industries simply shut down because there is not a vaccine yet and there may not be one in distribution form that's effective until the end of next year even in mass. So what do you do until then? Do you just sort of wait and see how how long these cash balances can sustain households? Well, I mean, it depends on your on your view of when the vaccine's coming, and, and the judgment on that's important. If it's, I mean, if the American administration's plan is truly enacted, and you and you get a vaccine in the next month or two, then by April next year, everyone will be vaccinated. So, whether or not you believe that's important, um, if you do, then maybe you can hold on. If you don't, and you think it takes longer, then sure, you may want to bridge that gap. But there's a, there's a short term versus long-term playoff here, isn't there? I mean, there is, um, there's some real issues. I know people talk about long-term unemployment and, and issues there, but I think there are also issues of, of spending in the short term and having some fiscal challenges in the, in the medium term, in medium to long term. And I, I think those need to be considered yeah. as well in the mix. So personally, I mean, I'm an optimist. So I think so much money has been thrown at this health problem. There's every chance we're going to get a vaccine and lots of good noises out there as well from all sorts of um, health healthcare CEOs and so on. So, I, I, you know, I, I, would, I would think it's almost worth holding on and, um, and pushing on through for the next few months. But that's a political judgment, of course. Well, Chris, let's develop this conversation just a little bit more. I don't think cash levels at the aggregate level are reason alone to say we don't need a fiscal stimulus plan. If you looked at the lower income groups that don't have those savings, but they do have a higher, moment, propens- higher marginal propensity to spend, let me get my words out, Chris, if we get the money into the hands of the lower income groups, then you've got some real stimulus, don't you? Yeah, sure. I mean, they're, they're, if you look at the low income versus the high income, the low income is already basically spending back where it was, if you like, um, if they've got the money um, back where it was from earlier this year, of course, because as you say, they have to spend, you know, they have to pay the bills and, and it's money in, money out. So absolutely much higher marginal propensity to spend and, and, and will be helpful in that respect. But, it, you know, once it's spent, it's gone and and it's on the fiscal, uh, it's on the fiscal uh, deficit side and the, and the fiscal debt side. So it, dep- it depends how you want to go about things. I mean, the more, the more you do helicopter money and build up government debt and, and effectively uh, pay for it with newly created money, the more you risk medium-term inflation. So there are trade-offs. And, um, you know, I just think there's not a balanced conversation. You need a balanced conversation about all the different trade-offs that are out there and, um, sure. a- a- and a better strategy. Well, let's have that now. Let's do that now. Ten-year yields right now are about 80 basis points. What's the trade-off? Well, the trade-off is, you know, uh, let's, let's, let's take up Dalio's thesis of the three phases of monetary policy in a debt super cycle, and we're into phase three. We're into helicopter money. So the trade-off is, yes, you, it looks cheap at the moment, but um, I think we're going to get the return of monetary inflation, you know, one of the old normals, if you like. And it feels quite a lot like the late 60s, early 70s. Not that I personally remember it terribly well. Um, but, you know, fiscal policy to get unemployment down 
and no no consequences and concerns about the monetary uh, growth that's out there. So, you know, then you get a potential of a repeat of the 70s. You get higher above average inflation and, and you get the trade off there in terms of, of real growth versus uh, inflation in normal GDP. So, you know, and lower productivity growth as well. So, so there's a trade-off, and I don't think Bonniels are pinned here for long. I mean, I think Bonniels is probably the, 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 the great short out there. And if you get this vaccine, I'm pretty convinced that's a, a great way to make money, whether it's 30 or 10 years, or, e- or even playing um, pricing in a bit of, bit of a rate hike on the three- or, or four-year Fed funds and, or, or Bonniels. So, you know, I think if we're going to get this economic boom next year, which I think is perfectly plausible, and you'll get the return of monetary inflation. Bonnie's at 81 are, 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 a, are a screaming sell. Chris, a really bold call right now, especially when you have the large houses looking at bonds and seeing perhaps they could sell off a little bit, yields could rise a bit, but not all that much, which brings me to a question about what you think monetary policy will and should be. In other words, will the Fed be willing to expand its balance sheet and buy more treasuries in order to suppress bond yields going forward in order to prevent that, even if inflation increases, you know, leading to uh, further negative real yields? Do you think that that is uh, an acceptable proposal or a good kind of stimulus going forward? to help the economic recovery? I suspect what we have is the Fed, um, it depends on the shape of the growth, and it probably, and that in part depends on the shape, uh, how the vaccine comes and the shape of the pandemic, if you like. So if, it, if it's my scenario that we expect that strong economic growth and a bit of a boom feel to it, then I think the Fed will be start, starting to back off, or back away from its stimulus, maybe 12, 18, 24 months down the road, but certainly doing that rather than engaging in yield curve control because growth will look good and healthy and and they won't feel the need to do that and they won't want to sort of, um, you know, uh, stoke up financial markets Mm. even more with more liquidity. But to be honest, if I'm wrong and it's, you know, pandemic continues, then sure, I think there's there's every reason you'll get yield curve control. Chris, one final question which alludes to, uh, as you mentioned, of the 60s inflation, and I'm going to call it Walter Heller inflation, so identified there, Robert Samuelson, with his wonderful book on the 60s and inflation. So far, the inflation east of crew has been wrong, 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 wrong. What's different this time? Yeah, good question. I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's 10 years of wrong forecasts, isn't it? I would say the demographics is what's different. I mean, monetary inflation needs two things. It means high, high, high money stock and it needs money velocity. And the best correlation and driver of money velocity we find out there, it's really the growth in the working age population, in particular, the, the younger part of that, the 20 to 40 year olds. And, you know, these guys are starting to, to, to grow as of this year. The baby boomers dominated 10 years ago. And they were savers then and into retirement. They're now sort of in retirement or moving in. And the more dominant age group in the States is the millennials. And they're starting to uh, get household formation, starting to have babies and so on. My my sort of off-the-cuff prediction is I think we're going to have a baby boom next year. It seems to be the most logical outcome of a lockdown. Um, And, you know, that age group is growing. Money velocity should start to accelerate. And that should give you the full monetary inflation equation, if you like, along with very high money stock, which is obviously already there. So that's that. Chris, to me is what great to catch up. Hey, Chris, always great appreciate your insight. You. It's great perspective. Come back soon, Chris. Seriously, Chris Wall in there of Longview Economics.
There's the foreign, the international policy uncertainty. Tina Fordham studies this at Avonhurst Advisory Services. We're thrilled she could be with us with really thoughtful synthesis here of tying this all uh, together. What does the State Department look like, Tina, with a Biden victory? Uh, well, it might have some people back in it again, Tom. Um, the State Department was famously hollowed out during the Trump administration. Um, and the conduct of U.S. foreign policy uh, really was coming you know, more from, from the White House. Uh, we have a lot of demoralized U.S. diplomats uh, around. And so I think what the broad expectation of a Biden presidency, as unexciting as it sounds, would be a return to uh, the kind of conduct of U.S. foreign policy um, that we've become used to globally, regardless of whether there's a Republican or a Democrat uh, in the White House. Second terms are always different. And, you know, with no disrespect to Mr. Trump, it seems all second terms enter jubilant and become exhausted more rapidly. Would you suggest a changed foreign policy in a second term Trump or just simply more of the same? Uh, so, as, as you say, you know, one of the the facts about being a second term U.S. president is you're a lame duck on the first day, right? You're, you're you know, you're you're not going to be reelected from there. Um, I would say not enough time has been spent thinking about what a second term foreign policy might look like under President Trump. But one thing that I think investors uh, can count on is the continuation of tough rhetoric toward China. Um, and, and in fact, that stands even if you have Joe Biden in the White House. So U.S.-China trade tensions uh, would remain strong. I think a big I think you will see for, foreign powers actually test a second uh, Trump terms for um, policy. Right. By perhaps being a bit more assertive. We started to see this in Turkey from from President Erdogan, for example. Um, who else might want to test the resolve uh, of, of President Trump or an incoming President Biden. Um, it's, a, it's a good time in many ways to see if, um, if the U.S. is willing to, to honor its uh, uh, agreements. Tina, it's hard to look out past the next seven days. There is still so much uncertainty about how this election process will unfold in the weeks, months afterwards. Among Democrats, there is a persistent fear of a 2016 redux, Hillary Clinton leading in polls, people predicting that she had an incredibly good chance of beating uh, now now President Trump, and uh, Clinton sort of taking a backseat and not campaigning as robustly in certain key uh, swing states. Now Joe Biden doing something similar. Is this 2016 all over again? Um, well, Democrats will certainly hope not uh, for many reasons. Um, first of all, Hillary's um, polling lead actually narrowed uh, in the final two weeks, um, which is uh, something they were not seeing yet with, with Joe Biden. His lead has been pretty consistent. So he has that on his side. Other factors, of course, that make this time different is far fewer undecided voters. People have been clear much earlier on in the race than we're used to in, in U.S. elections. Uh, and we don't have third party candidates that are really um, helping, uh, you know, divide things further. So there, there are some important differences between now and 2016. But for sure, uh, it's it remains possible that there could be another divided um, outcome between the popular vote and the Electoral College, which is why I think 
the margin is is really the key variable to to watch for here. Um, President Trump, of course, would be you know would be hoping for another electoral college uh, led victory, and he he does have a, a path for that remaining, despite the you know the the negatives and the headwinds against him in this race. But another difference would be that I think, unlike in two thousand, for example, uh, Bush Gore. I don't think Democrats will roll over quite so easily um, as uh, as they did uh, at that, that time. Tina, four years later, is the polling better this time around? Well, this is what my pollster friends assure me. Um, you know, I'm not a I'm not a pollster or an election forecaster myself. Uh, pollsters really took a beating. Um, when in fact, to be fair to them, uh, they were pretty accurate in the in the national polling, right? Um, because Hillary Clinton did win in, 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 on that front. It was the Electoral College polling, and it was specifically um, white, non-college educated uh, men who were under the radar screen. This time, if anything, I suspect pollsters will have overcompensated for this error. Um, and it's hard to think of uh, a kind of hidden pocket of people, cohort of people that could appear um, uh, that, that haven't been uh, factored in. And then, of course, we have the phenomenon of what looks like historically um, huge turnout. Tina, great to catch up. Appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Tina Fordham there, Avonhurst Advisory Services Head of Global Political Strategy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.